You are listening to Anatomy 102, Systemic Unity, the second sermon in a series entitled Divine Physiology, preached at Hook Essen Baptist Church in the spring of 2009. And now, Pastor John Boulay. just got back uh, from a week-long conference. Um, It was great, and um, I kept reminding myself the whole week I was there to say thank you to you for allowing me and for celebrating the fact that uh, uh, I I can can and should go to those things because it it really ministered to me, and so I want to thank you for uh, taking care of my family and providing for us um, the way you do. Well, we're, we're talking about the Bible, or the body of Christ, the church. We will be talking about the Bible. We're talking about the body of Christ, and this sermon series called Divine Physiology. And there's something, I told you last week, I'm not a biology guy per se, but there's something that is interesting to me about the body, and that is when, uh, when you're trying to learn about the systems of the body, if, if you're in biology class, or if you're even trying to discuss it with your children, it's very difficult to have a conversation about a system of the body totally separate from the other systems of the body. So if, if my son asked me, how does, how does the respiratory system work? I mean, as if sons ask those kinds of questions. Uh, uh, but if a person asked me, how does the respiratory system work? I could tell them, uh, well, you, know, you take air in, and, and this is what the lungs do. But at some point, if he's thinking about it, he'll say, but how does the oxygen get to the rest of the body? And at that point, it's kind of where I'd say, well, that's the circulatory system, not the respiratory system, because the two kind of meet. The same way, if you eat a meal and you're trying to explain to somebody what happens to that meal, you know, you say you chew it and the saliva breaks it down, it goes down your throat or your, your esophagus is the, is the academic word. Goes down your esophagus into your stomach, and when it's in your stomach, enzymes break up the food. And if someone says, Well, does the stomach make those enzymes? You'd have to say, Well, no, that's really not part of the digestive system. That's part of the, the endocrine, endocrine system, the, the glandular system. And that's how it is with everything, right? Our nervous system and, and our skeletal system, they all kind of work together to form one kind of idea of a systemic unity of the body, which is really quite miraculous. Scientists can tell me, in, in, in language I can receive, how a, how a brain cell knows what to do, how it, how it replicates itself, the functions that the brain cell does, or, or how a muscle cell knows what to do, or how a bone cell knows what to do. But I've never heard anybody get anywhere near explaining to me how a muscle cell knows how to cooperate with a brain cell while it's cooperating with a bone cell. How how does the body know to be the body? That is miraculous. And it's really, I think, an issue that's, as of right now, outside of science. And I think the Lord intends to keep it that way. Just my hunch. But this is what Paul says. Because even when, that's the reason, by the way, that when one part of your body suffers, the whole body suffers. It's not just... Uh, that's not just a biblical truth. You know it is to be true. When you, when you get something, uh, you know, if, if, if there's a chemical imbalance in your endocrine system, it, it'll throw your whole life off of kilter. Even if you sprain your ankle, it is amazing to me how quickly that can become a major nerve back issue. 
and you walk out of balance for a little while, next thing you know, your whole body is out of balance. And this is what what Paul says. He says, if one part of the body suffers, every part of the body suffers. And if one part of the body is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. I think he's talking about this idea of systemic unity. When we are unified as a whole body, we celebrate and we can feel it. But when some part of the body is out, is struggling, some part of the church is just not right, the whole body feels it. We're connected. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying in Corinthians. That's what he's saying in Ephesians. In fact, Ephesians, kind of the theme of the book of Ephesians, is the unity of the church. That's a major theme throughout the whole letter of Ephesians, and it's one that we're going to kind of build on over the, uh, the next few weeks, is we're going we're gonna to build this idea of what the church should be about and like based on this idea of whatever it is, it should have a kind of systemic unity about it. And so as the weeks to come, we'll be, we'll be working on that. But this morning, we're in Ephesians 2, and if you'll turn... We're going to look at the, just the idea of systemic unity, and that's coming out of Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to work as hard as I can. This is essentially a study in Ephesians, not of Ephesians. So it's not a, a, an exhaustive study of the book of Ephesians, but your messages are going to come from Ephesians. Because Ephesians is awesome. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Now, before I read, there are some words. I'm going to read two verses in a second, 11 and 12. But there's the word, there's the word circumcised. It shows up two times in that, in that little section. And I want us, I want to talk about circumcision right now so that when I read the whole passage, nothing interferes with your, like your mind's motion. So let me, get, let me get the roadblock out of the way now. And then when we process the whole passage, we can better feel what Paul's trying to say. Circumcision was a Jewish rite typically performed on a, well, it was always performed on a male, typically performed on a male child on the eighth day in which his foreskin was cut. Now, a a male convert to Judaism, regardless of the age, would still undergo the rites and the act of circumcision, but typically for those born within the Jewish faith, it's done on the eighth day. And there's a lot of reasons why, and there's a lot of purposes behind circumcision, and I think people would preach on it more if it just wasn't so icky, But since it's icky, we kind of talk around it often, although one day you're going to get a good circumcision sermon. Just got to get over it. But anyway, so here's a few purposes of circumcision. One of the first is it sets the Jewish people apart. There's a physical representation on their body that says, I am a Jew, not a Gentile. The rest of the world is a Gentile. To To the Jew, to be circumcised means you're not the world. And there's certainly, you don't have to think very far to see the spiritual implications of that, right? When Christ, or when the word says, the prophet says, circumcise your heart, you can know what he's talking about. But there's another thing about circumcision. That's the thing that it's intimate, it's most intimate. It's just that whole act is happening in such a private place, which is in a way how the Lord works in us, isn't it? He sets us apart, and he does it in such an intimate way. In our most intimate places is where we find Christ and where Christ dwells. And so that's, when we read circumcision here in a few minutes, that's just what I want you to think is set apart, intimate. Okay? Instead of circumcision. Uh, (laughs) So, it begins in verse 11 with this word, therefore. And the therefore is completing the thought um, 
that was read earlier to you during our prayer time, and I'll, and I'll just reread from verse 8 onwards, it's completing this thought. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, is what Paul saying. And this is what Paul says. I'll read 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that you at that time were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That's what Paul says. As Paul's beginning to build this argument on systemic unity, he begins it with this teaching. Remember what you once were. Remember what you once were. And before I go any further, I, I want to say uh, a, a kind word. I'm talking about the church. Paul's talking about the church. I'm talking about the church. This is written to the church. So if you're outside the body of Christ, if you don't know Jesus, if you consider yourself a seeker or a listener... That's fine today. Seek and listen. Okay? I'm not going to be zinging you. I will zing you a little bit. But I'm primarily talking to the church. I also want to say, if you are not a full-fledged, dyed-in-the-wool member of this church, but if you are kind of a, a new transplant or an attender, or you're, you're kind of in that phase where you're getting to know the church, or it's the first church you've been in, or you're a recent convert, you know who you are. If you're one of those people, I'm not throwing spears at you either. But I want you to listen, because like next year, I'll throw spears at you. <laughs> so, so what I want, though, is I want open ears. I want you to be responsive, because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zing some people this morning. Not because I want to zing you, but because I think the word of the Lord intends for you to listen and heed. But this is what he says. He says, remember what you once wore. And what's I, what I want you to think is, before you leave this room, Christian... And proceed to gossip about somebody here today. I want you to remember what you wore. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying before you go another Sunday, will you let the you, you pass the Lord's tithe up, will you pass the opportunity to serve up, will you pass the opportunity to pray with somebody, or do what you know the Spirit is telling you to do. Remember what you once wore. That's what Paul's saying. Before you criticize or judge somebody else's spiritual standing here before you decide where they are versus where you are, before you look at the big little splinter in their eye, despite the big plank in your eye, remember what you once were. Before you think about the services rendered this morning, when you came, how, how good the music was, or how what your children did or did not learn, or, or what you thought about the zinging of the pastor today, before you do any of that, remember what you once were. That's what Paul is saying. And this is how he says it. He says in verse 11, he says, Remember what you once were. And he says, Formerly you were Gentiles. Formerly you were outside of God. You were of the world. Formerly you were uncircumcised. Formerly you were not set apart for the Lord. Verse 12, Formerly you were separated from Christ, is verse 12. You were not a citizen of Israel. You were a foreigner to the promise of God. You were without hope. You were without God. That's what Paul says. Whatever he's going to say, he's going to say, before I can even begin to build on unity, you need to remember what you were, and that is someone without hope. Zero hope. 
No hope. You were a foreigner to God. You had no promise. You had no mark. You were not set apart. You had no hope. That's how Paul is building this argument. Now this is where I should say to, to, to the non-believer, who I went easy on a second ago, particularly to the non-believer who has been coming Sunday after Sunday here and listening and, and enjoying the message or enjoying the fellowship, certainly enjoying the, the, the harvest of fruit in this church, I would say, this is not being written to you, which means you don't need to remember what you once were. You need to acknowledge or see what you are, which is someone who is outside of the covenant promise of Christ, someone who is separated from Jesus, someone who has no hope, who is living in sin, who is separated from the promises of God and is without God. That's who you are. And, and I, I have to say... By the way, I got all this conference fire up zing in me. So uh, I got a, like a suitcase full of vision and vigor that's going to pretty much come out on you today. And uh, so listen with a gentle spirit. Uh, but as I've been, rest- I've been wrestling with people in the church have been coming to me saying, have you thought about an invitation, how an invitation should work in the church? And I'm going to tell you from the bottom of my heart, I want, I want to do the right thing with the Spirit. And I'm trying to find an honest, authentic, relevant way to invite people to Jesus Christ. Apart from what we're doing. And I have, I, I'm young, and I, I don't know where we are. I'm not to the end of that road yet. But I want to say this this morning. Everyone here is wholeheartedly invited to follow Jesus. You're invited. This is an open invitation to everyone here to obey the Spirit. Don't do it because I'm saying it to you. Don't do it because the scripture is saying it to you. Do it because the spirit has been saying it to you. How you can sit in the seat and listen to the sermon on one day or listen to the message or experience the fellowship of believers and feel the spirit working in your life and put a cork on that and walk away, I don't know. You are invited this morning to obey the spirit. And that's just not to non-believers. That's to everyone here. You don't need my permission to be obedient to the spirit. Obey the Spirit. This is an open invitation. It stands from now until whenever I leave and the next pastor gives you the same open invitation. Obey the Spirit. You're invited. I'll be down here at the end of the service. I'm the guy in the green shirt. There's a few others. You can talk to them too. But you're invited. i got to get back to my sermon. Remember what you once were. And then he says this, verses 13 to 18. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And this one body to reconcile both them to God through the cross by which he put to death 
their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. That's what Paul says. Paul says, remember who you were. And he says, but Christ has done this thing. Christ has taken the two and made them one. Christ has taken the outsider and somehow made him an insider. And I want this morning, since... Excuse me. Since Paul has already begun to talk about the idea of the body of Christ, he spoke about it in chapter 1. Last week I read to you that he says that Christ is the head of the body and the body is the church. And even here he's talking, taking two men and making him one man. I want to give you or I want to build on this metaphor of the body to show you what I think is spiritually being represented, at least in its, its substance. What Paul is saying is this, remember what you once were. You were once living in a body of sin. You weren't just a person. You were once part of a body of sin and iniquity, a lawless body, a body that was in death, a body that was in decay, a body that was going to be buried and judged. That's where you once were, is what Paul says. In fact, verse 3, look at verse 3. For all of us lived, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Paul says, remember that. You were once in that lawless body, laying dead on the coroner's table. That's what you were. And then he says, and Christ took that man and fused him with himself. What he's saying is, is somehow, in some way, not by what you did, there's nothing you did, no matter how beautiful or elegant or educated or talented or capable or gifted you were, you were an organ sitting in a dead man. Incapable of doing anything right. Because the man was dead. You were in Adam. You were subject to the sin and judgment of Adam, no matter how good you were. And what what Paul says is, by faith, not anything you did, but by faith, which is a gift, this great divine physician walked over to this table, and he cut you out of that body. He cut this organ out of the body, and he carried it, and he carried it over to the dead body of Jesus Christ, and he put you in Jesus Christ, and then he raised Christ from the dead. That's what he's saying. He's saying you were once in sin and death and hopelessness and judgment, but because Christ, in the blood of Christ, he's put you in this body. He's, making, he's made the two bodies one, and we are part of the body. And this body is the church. This body is the church. That you were part of this body. The blood of Christ that flows through you doesn't flow over you like you're a person where the blood's flowing over you. The blood flows through you. We are in Jesus. Read the New Testament. Almost every time it speaks about us and our relationship with Christ, it's we are in Christ. It is through Christ. Christ is in us and through us. We have our being, is what it says. We are in Christ Jesus. We are in the body of Christ, and that body is the church. Are you hearing me? The body is the church. The blood that flows through us may be Christ's. The air, the breath of life that imbibes in us through the blood may be the Spirit's, but the blood comes to you and is pushed through you by the heart and the veins and the lungs, and those are the church. This is a systemic unity in the body of Christ. We are not independent. When we come to Christ, we come to Christ by coming into his body which is the church. Thus saith the Lord. I'm not making this up. This is scripture. 
Thus saith the Lord. So how did this modern view of the church come to be? This individualistic idea of the faith. That somehow I pray a prayer and that the Lord comes into my heart like I have a a Christ-shaped hole in my heart and Jesus comes in. Do you see, by the way, how that begins to conflict with this image? Now, I don't want to pick on that phrase because technically it's fine. There are many things in this world that are technically fine when you say them once, but they become wrong when that's all you ever say. And that's what's gone wrong here is technically that's right. Just like if I saw the sunset over Mount McKinley with eagles flying and I said, awesome, that's technically right. But if I said that and then I looked down and found a nickel and picked it up and went, awesome, now, now the word is blown, right? Now it's wrong because if a nickel's awesome, then that was like super duper awesome. I've messed it up. But we've done the same thing with invite Jesus into your heart today. Invite him into your heart. We say that so many times that we begin to believe that me plus Jesus is a total package. All I need is Jesus, and I'm it. That's all I need. And the scriptures disagree with that. They defy that. They say, no, you don't need Jesus to come into your heart. You need to turn and cry out for the Spirit to cut you out of the lawless man and transplant you into the body of Christ. That's what you need. Yet we have forgotten it. I'm zinging some of you. We've been called to fill Christ in his fullness. The biblical picture of salvation is done within the church. I don't care how Catholic that sounds, it's right. It's done within and among the church. It's what the Bible says. This individualistic Western idea of salvation is problematic and creates immature Christians that sit outside of the body of Christ and don't know what to do and wonder why they're not growing. This is the middle position that we've established, is somehow we've created this middle position. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not talking about membership. I think that's part of it, and it's coming. We'll talk about membership. I'm, talking about, I'm not talking about HPC. I'm not talking about this cinder block Super gematory nazy worshiping. I don't know. I, that's not what I'm talking about, okay? What I'm talking about is that you would be a committed follower, not in simply a parachurch organization, but in a full committed body of Christ. A body of Christ where when it grieves, you grieve. A body of Christ that when it rejoices, you express the same joy. A body of Christ that uses you and that you use. You don't just take, you take as you give. You have two open hands, and you're grabbing and you're giving. And you're giving what they don't have, and you're taking what you don't have. That's the body of Christ I'm talking about. It should be here. I hope it's here. But I I can imagine people are finding that in other ways, and I'm saying, obey the Spirit. But somehow we have a middle position. We have, I'm out of the body of Christ. The divine physician has reached in, and he's cut me out of this body of death. And I'm sitting here, and he carries me over to the body of Christ, and he's about to plunge me in, but for some reason, this organ is resistant to that body. Some medical reason, it's going to reject the body. It's not ready. It's the wrong blood type. I hope that's not it. 
but there's some reason why this organ does not want to go into that body. And it says, I'm saved, right? He's out over here. Through faith, he's been resurrected from the dead body. And he's sitting here, but God cannot use it. And so you know what he does? God's like looking around, and he finds these organ donor ice chests. And he just sticks you in it. What use is that? What is the biblical category for that? Is that in the Bible? If it is, I'm the guy in the green shirt. You can tell me later. Or tell them. But I don't see that as a biblical category. I see the category as if you're out of that, you're in that. I see the work is being done by Christ. That he made the two men one. That he cut out and he put in. And that the blood that you experience in your salvation is the very blood that pulses through you right now. It is the blood of the new covenant of Christ. It's his living blood being pumped by the heart, pushed through the veins, filled by the air which is gathered by the lungs of the church. That's what I see. It's my icebox phenomena is what I called it. I wrote here in my notes, I've got to be gentle. Because I know I'm zinging some of you, and I know the people that I'm zinging the hardest are the ones who are most tender on this issue. I know some of you have been hurt in previous communities. I know some of you are coming and you have great excuses and exceptions. And I'm saying, look, I'm, I am painting with a broad brush here. I don't know what your life is like, but I'm saying, listen to the Spirit as he convicts you from the Word. Don't take my word for it. Obey the Spirit. Be obedient. And I'm also saying tomorrow you don't have to teach Sunday school here or be in the nursery. This is not a nursery sale. This is change your course. Change the direction in which you're heading and let the Christ do the rest of the work. That's what I'm saying. i got enough time to do a tangent. I want to do a tangent. This is the last conference you're going to ever send me to. <laughs> if you'll turn to Ephesians 5, so you'll see why in a second, why a pastor would actually voluntarily tangent into Ephesians 5. We're going to look at husbands and wives for a second. But I want us to look at it from this perspective of, in, in, in this section, the God, uh, Paul, God, is going to tell wives to submit to their husbands and husbands to love their wives. But the imagery he uses here is Christ and the church. And what I want us to do is, no, normally we go to this chapter to figure out what men and women are supposed to do in marriage. I want us rather to go in this chapter to see what does it tell us about Christ and the church. Because usually we get to that part and Paul writes, it's a mystery. It's a mystery of Christ and the church. And we're kind of like, <laughs> Anyway, here's what you're supposed to do, but that's a mystery. But I want to see if we can kind of work on this mystery. And I will eventually zing husbands and wives, but let's start on working on this mystery. So I'm going to work on the husbands first because the, the, the full picture is in, in that section. And then we'll do the wives. So I'm going to read 25, and then I'm going to skip to 29, mostly because I'm running out of time. It's all the same. It's all, it's, it's all unified in thought. So we'll skip to 29, and I'll read from there. So husbands... Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's like there's two people, isn't it? It doesn't sound like the two have become one yet. But then he says in 29, After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. And then he quotes Genesis, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ in the church. That's what Paul says. Paul is saying 
that Christ is married to the church, and through that, and through that mysterious idea, you know, he's saying, look, the man is not literally Christ, and the woman is not literally the church, and the two aren't literally coming together, but the union that a husband and a wife experience, or should experience, at least in their minds they ought to experience, that union is the kind of union that occurs when Christ unifies himself with the members of the lawless body who come by faith and, and, and as he plunges them into the body of Christ. He's saying that is the union of marriage. That's how you should understand this. The mystery is the fact that Christ has made that body his body. That he, through the death and the judgment, that he laid down as the lawless man, though he had no flaw, though he had broken no law, he suffered and humbled himself and was raised as the glorified man. Somehow Christ did that. That's the mystery, that he was husband and wife. Mystery. Well, what does that say to you husbands? To me, what it says to you husbands is, you are not allowed to grow tired of your marriage. That if you are a Christian husband, if you are subject to the spirit of the God who strengthens you, I believe he will give you strength. If you have the blood of Christ in you that sustains you, I believe he will sustain you. And if you are a Christian, you cannot give up on your marriage. You can't cast an eye to someone else. You can't deny your wife the love and the glory that she deserves and so desperately needs. You cannot live a life of anger or hold bitterness in your heart. If you are the husband, you need to behave towards the wife like Christ does towards us. Which means the day you're allowed to get a divorce because you're tired of it is the day that you need to have holes in your wrists and in your feet. Once you have endured death for her, then we can talk. That's what he's saying to the husband. The husband. This is what he's saying to the wife. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wives submit to their husbands and everything. Had I approached this chapter in any other way, I would be hemming and hawing and nervous. I'd be puking my guts out in the corner of my office before church. But when you approach it with a view of what the church is supposed to be, I can say proudly to you, ladies, what do you think the church is supposed to do with Christ? Honor? Respect, submit, worship. We, we, we nitnoid this verse trying to figure out how much can I respect the wife and yet still kind of say what the Bible says. And I'm saying submission is the beginning. It's the beginning. And there's nobody here who has closed the loop on this, by the way. There's no husband who's Christ and there's no wife who's the flawless, spotless church. So I don't care if you're married one year or hundred years we can do this better but I'm saying wives you need to behave towards your husband in the way that is fitting for the church towards Christ and when you're trying to figure out what do I do he just said this I can't believe that he just left all his dishes on the table whatever it is right whatever it is you need to say how does the church relate to Christ and husbands, you need to do the same thing. 
because the two have become one. The two are in the same body. This is an issue of systemic unity. That's what this is. If one part of the family suffers, the whole family is suffering. And if one rejoices, the family rejoices together. Now, some of you are thinking, well, my husband ain't no Christ. (laughs) The teaching is not on what your husband is. The teaching is on what you ought to be. And the teaching is not on your wife, what, what your wife is. The teaching is what you ought to be to your wife. That's the teaching. And for that, we all have, I know I have to work. I came home from my conference and I was so full of conviction, I just told my wife I'd be better. <laughs> she didn't even have to coax it out of me. I said, I'll be better. <laughs> so I'm just saying, I zinged myself like a hundred times before you got any zing. So. Uh, so how do we do this? I'll close. How do we do this? I'm not going to give you any kind of glib, short points that will fix things because this is a big idea. I'm not talking marriage anymore. I'm back to the church. In fact, marriage is supposed to point us back to the church. So how do we live this life of systemic unity in the church? We're going to talk about it for a number of weeks, but this is what I will say. We do not live it by ourselves. We live it through the blood of Christ. And we live it by the power of the Spirit. That's how we live it. So for whatever, whatever you may learn or process on this week or the weeks to come, it cannot be done outside of the power of Jesus Christ. It is the same gospel that saves us, is the gospel of Christ that keeps us and preserves us. It's as if some of us think that the blood of Christ went through us one time and then we're saved. Rather, if we're in the body of Christ, how often is the blood of Christ going through us? Constantly. It is constantly going with every beat of his heart. We feel the blood of Christ. Every time he respirates, we receive the breath of Christ in our life. And that, that is the most practical thing I can say on how we get better. Is we lean on Jesus. We say, I am not my own entity. I am not as an organ, as a liver sitting in the hand of the divine physician. I am useless. I am dependent on him to place me in the body of Christ, the church, and to allow the church and the spirit and the saving blood of Jesus Christ to change me. That is how we get better. I think every problem in the church could be solved this way. Remember what you once were. Truly remember what you used to be sitting on that table And be mindful of what you are now. Thoughtful of who brought you across the room. I'll close with the the end of this chapter. And then we'll pray. Some of you may need to come this morning. And I'll be down here after the service. Verse 19. Consequently, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ, Jesus as himself, the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Every song.